0: Hello everyone, my name is Jack Fernan, and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Anne Harrison, who is a breathwork practitioner and an adherent in the City Yoga tradition. Breathwork is a spiritual practice that has derived from several traditions, including Hinduism, Buddhism and Taoism. And while we have explored the city yoga tradition before on this podcast, Anne in her breathwork practice brings in teachings from other disciplines to help teach about the power of the breath. In my conversation with Anne, we spoke about her origins as a non-believer, being an academic in the field of linguistics, and how by attending a breathwork session herself, she developed an intimate connection with the divine. We also spoke about her time in China and Hong Kong, running a retreat center and how she also had another transformative experience on a trip to the City Yoga Ashram in Ganeshpuram. In Amongst Dan's story, we spoke about the ineffable nature of God, the development of breathwork practices in the West and the influence of Eastern religious traditions in the mid-20th century, the evolution of modern meditation and consciousness practices, and how modern medicine is using some of these practices to provide more holistic solutions for patients. One of the things that we didn't talk about is the coronavirus, and so you could treat this as a bit of respite from the news of the outside world. But as always, everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. And thank you for having me here today.
1: My great pleasure. My great pleasure, Jack.
0: To have a chat with you. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a while because you have quite an interesting story, and- the way that you've gone about sort of finding your spirituality, you've seen like you've drawn on sources from various different places. Hmm,
1: That's an interesting observation. Two things. That, first of all, what, what makes you think that I've had an interesting journey? But secondly, what made you think that um, I've drawn along in different influences? Um, since 1990, there's only really been one influence. But what could cause you to think that is perhaps the fact that I think that just as there are many languages saying the same thing, so there are many spiritual paths and the mystics in all those paths say the same thing, that um, God is one, that we are one with God and that our focus on that. Which will strengthen that oneness and acceptance of all.
0: But you, you weren't always on a a spiritual journey. You, well, let's start with the background.
1: I grew up in Australia in Sydney. Um, I uh, had a quietly devout mother who never, after she was married broadcast that, except to make sure that I was went to Sunday school and, and was confirmed and um, uh, she allowed me to explore a Christian perspective. Um, and then I went to university and I thought, tut, tut faith by definition is irrational and I'm not going to have any part of that. And no one around me at the time could have argued that faith is not irrational. It's what the academics these days would call a phenomenological experience. That the subjective experience of the divine, in fact, is the only, in my view, the only argument for the divine, the existence of of God, if we want to do it that. But um, I got caught in the intellectual fallacy of, well, prove God to me if you can. And of course, you can't. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, just as you can't not prove god's exactly. existence exactly yeah and so what were you studying at university
1: um languages okay so i'm a linguist in the two senses i'm i speak a number of languages and i also have a master's in systemic linguistics which is the structure and function of language in
0: context right can you break that down a bit
1: so um i think it how it influenced me and this is the a podcast on spirituality, um, language has a function which is the communication between individuals and it has a structure. So the structure of this interview starts off with a formal introduction, uh, giving me a bit of background, present experience, except there's a structure.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh, we hope. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there is a structure. There's a structure to our communications. Yeah. And, and so that will change according to who's speaking and the purpose of their communication, uh, whether it's written or spoken. So that was the formal study of linguistics. But also I studied French and German uh, in my undergraduate degrees. So I'm very used to being able to say the same thing in a variety of ways. Hence why I said, for me, a spiritual path, there may be many paths up the mountain or many descriptions of the one, but really there's only one. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. I suppose one of the big things in what the mystics talk about and we're probably jumping ahead here, but it's not a bad time to talk about it, is the inexpressible nature of mm. God mm. and that even with all the languages that that we have in the world, there is still no true or perfect uh, phrase or term that can really get to the essence of what it is.
1: Yes, exactly. And so in in the writings we'll hear that God is ineffable. But if you think about it, how dare we imagine that we actually could express with words what is so much bigger than words? It's illogical contradiction we cannot sp- express in words that which is greater than words so what i do know though is that when people have had the experience of that expansive state that we will call god for convenience here um we recognize each other whether that their path is a hindu path or a christian path or a buddhist or a sufi path We recognise someone who has had that experience. And so we don't need There's, I don't know how we recognise each other just by a a phrase here and a hint there, but we do. Mm. And so for me, I just step back into that comfortable place of linguist, oh, that's just another way of expressing God Mm. or the experience of God.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. But you went on to become an academic Mm -hmm. and that was in linguistics?
1: Yes, it was in linguistics. It was um, uh, and also in pedagogy. So I was uh, lecturing in functional systemic linguistics and also training teachers um, uh, in how to teach language. And at that point in my career, I was working in Darwin and, um, they had Aboriginal languages, 15 bilingual schools in the Northern Territory. And one of the important things about systemic linguistics, it looks at text structure and the, and just as vocabulary and grammar change from language to language, so do larger bodies of text. And if you're got, um, you're coming to English as a second or third or fourth language, you don't know the code. So you won't know either how to write the code. So the most important information will get understood or actually look at a piece of writing or listen and pick out the most important um, pieces of information because your discourse structure, the, the language that you speak, if it's not English, will have a different way of encoding important information. So it's extremely important in was for me in the Northern Territory, to show, make explicit from primary school onwards how to teach the codes of English, so that they wouldn't even be more disadvantaged than they already are.
0: Yeah, mm. and did you enjoy your time in Darwin?
1: It was one of the most creative times of my life. It was, it was where I truly had a, a, a spiritual awakening, um, in a classic. In a tradition, an Indian tradition, that I didn't even know existed, I was just avoiding the deadline of a chapter of a textbook I was writing, and I went along to this this workshop, and I had what I didn't know was a classic kundalini awakening. Um, And from there, my life did indeed change dramatically. But while I another year and a half or so that I remained in Darwin, I did radio, I wrote textbooks, I did documentaries, <laughs> I did, I was one of the most amazingly creative periods of my life and um, and I trained in the work that I um, subsequently did for, and am doing still to this day.
0: Right. Do you want to talk us a bit through that that experience mm. and um, give a bit of an understanding about what a Kundalini awakening is?
1: Okay. So um, as I said, I was an academic. I wasn't a spiritual seeker. I, um, but even in '85, I wrote directly onto the computer. So those old DOS computers. Way and I. (laughs) I, That's right. And I didn't want to sit behind the computer all weekend. And there was this introduction to breathwork Friday night, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning. So I thought, oh, I can do both. <laughs> I don't have to sit behind the computer all weekend. And it was on the Sunday morning. And the words that I'll use now, I certainly didn't have then. But I was you, doing breath work, you lie down. So I was lying down and I felt tingling coming up through my body and through what I subsequently learned to be the chakras and blinding white light in my head, propelling me over. Snow capped mountains on a brown landscape, which I thought was a bit ridiculous, until I saw <laughs> Kailash, and um, and all the symptoms of physical orgasm. And I thought, oh, I just have to breathe. I'll train in this, which is how I got to train in breath work. I wasn't, I wasn't fixing up my life in any way. I was just wanting ecstasy. Yeah. And that's what I got all through my training, uh, but. Subsequently, when I went to live in China and in Hong Kong, I had the more cathartic uh, experiences that breathwork can bring, but the ecstatic experiences continued. And so, the kund- a kundalini awakening, and that's important uh, to mention, in the Hindu Hindu tradition, and for me, I realized later it was particularly Kashmir Shaivite tradition. A kundalini awakening is the beginning. Of a spiritual path, then we do lots of spiritual practices, or it's traditionally we do lots of spiritual practices to awaken the kundalini. But then the real journey begins, the real spiritual unfolding begins, and and that's what has been my experience. So
0: it's like a initiation.
1: Well, t- traditionally, you would say the the kundalini shakti, the energy of the kundalini, the kundalini shakti lies dormant in the base of the spine. And when it is awoken, it travels up the sushumna nadi, so up through the spine, through all the chakras, until it reaches the sixth chakra, and then transcendence. So that's the the portal, I guess, the portal which one is taken through if one's fortunate, and and so uh, people can have. Dramatic experiences like I had, or much more subtle ones in the presence of a traditional teacher, that it's only when they look back that they realise that their life has completely changed. My life changed very dramatically Um, very soon after that. Another year, and I was living in Shanghai. And another two years, I was living in Hong Kong, where I set up a retreat meditation centre. So which I didn't intend to set up. I just wanted to live in a beautiful place, and this was by the sea with mountains coming down to the sea, a waterfall at the back, uh, walks all around the hills. It was
0: picturesque. It
1: <laughs> was. It was absolutely fantastic. And, and since I had um, these skills that an Australian woman who had set up a holistic healing centre in Hong Kong wanted in her centre, I thought, oh, I'll give it a go, give it a go. I can see if I can... But I had a job in Shanghai to go back to, which I cancelled because the place was just so very, very beautiful. I thought, I'll just, I'll stay.
0: Yeah. And so what were you doing in Shanghai?
1: I went to continue studying martial arts, but in order to do that, I needed um, a visa. And the easiest way to get a visa was to be employed. And so I got a a joint Chinese-Australian government scholarship, which allowed me to work in a a university, have a visa, have a, an apartment, and be paid as much in the month as I got in three days in Australia. So right. <laughs> it was like, well, okay, that's all right. I wasn't going there for the money.
0: <laughs> yeah, two step forwards, one step back. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, yeah. And the martial arts, I've got to ask about that.
1: Well, um, I first went to China in 1977 and again in 1978 and um, – It was in this, so it was the winter of 70, January of 77 and the June of 78. And I would get up every morning in the 78 trip and walk out into the parks. And there would be millions of people doing their exercises, some martial arts, some gentle exercises, Qigong. And very often in different cities, I would be beckoned to a group. And they would put me in the middle of the group so that, this is Tai Chi especially, put me in the middle of the group so that every way I turned, I would have someone to follow. And I was just enamored by it. And it took me a year and a half back in Sydney to uh, find a teacher who I intuited, and correctly as it turns out, was a really good teacher. And so I learned Tai Chi with him. But I also, um, he started with Shaolin Chuan, Shaolin uh, style, Hunga and um, Zhao Ga. And then I went to Darwin where there was no Tai Chi teacher, but there was a, a teacher. You know, They're all connected, the master. So I was given a letter of introduction, etc. cetera, um, who did Wing Chun. Now, Wing Chun is what Bruce Lee started with. Right. And he then went on from there. So, But it was designed by a woman. And the thing is about those, about Tai Chi as a martial art, and Wing Chun is that they don't block the way um, you do in, in Jia Gao, Hung Ga. You deflect the, the, the opponent as they're using their energy against them. So both in, in Tai Chi and, and um, Wing Chun, that was the case. But then that teacher in Darwin gave me a letter of introduction to a teacher in Shanghai who turned out to be one of the world's great masters. And it was wonderful. Both he and his wife, um, Ma Yu Liang and Wu Yinghua. Wu Yinghua was the daughter of the founder of the modern Wu style of Tai Chi. So there are five lineages of Tai Chi and the Wu style is one of those lineages. And I happened to be learning with the daughter and the son-in-law. But I didn't know who I was given a letter of introduction to. It was just very good fortune that I was given that letter of
0: introduction. Just so happened to be.
1: Yeah, just so happened to be. It was so interesting because I took a book that my Tai Chi teacher in Sydney had written, and in the front of the book, there was a picture of the master, of Wu's, Master Wu, and I looked at the picture of her father, because my Chinese at that point was non-existent. It, it, it developed to conversational level, but it was non-existent. And I saw that her father, she keep pointing at Baba, Baba, was the same person that was in the book. It's like, oh, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and I was in the plane to Shanghai and all I prayed for was great teachers. I just wanted a great teacher. And it turned out in those years away I got two great teachers, great martial arts teacher and a great spiritual
0: teacher. Yeah, well asking you shall receive. <laughs> that's
1: right, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> right. But you've got this you've, you've had this experience through your breathwork um weekend retreat. Mm. And at the start you mentioned there's sort of been one aspect or one idea that's sort of been driving you. Would well you,
1: what since uh, I be since that awakening experience. So that was um, eighty five. So the last twenty odd years, and I had all all my training in breath work, and then went to China, and I'd set up my centre in the Hong Kong countryside. When someone said to me, "Oh." <sighs> come along to this ashram. I've, I've just been there. It's just fantastic. The teacher is wonderful. And I thought, ashram, gurus, no thank you. But I'm all for continuing professional education, upgrading, and surely ashrams would have something to teach me. How how could I possibly be so arrogant to think I knew everything? <laughs> and um, so I popped in on the way to Europe to meet up with my mother and father and the way back again. And that's when my mind got blown because the current head of Siddha Yoga, um, I'd seen in vision during my training. So when I went to the ashram, there was a woman who I'd seen in vision five years before I'd even heard of Siddha Yoga. And and on the wall was a picture of her teacher who I'd also seen in vision five years before I'd I'd, uh, heard of Siddha Yoga. So that literally blew my mind. I went to all primary sources. I read everything I could. And already that, with that awakening experience, I was spontaneously meditating. I didn't think it was meditation. I thought I was just practicing the breathing. <laughs>
0: it's like the-
1: <laughs> I was meditating. Um, and I was meditating on the chakras. Uh, it, it just because I like to do that. Yeah. I had no intellectual understanding at the time of what this was giving me, or why I might have been drawn to these things, it would just all happened, and I allowed it and followed it, and have been reaping the rewards ever since
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so when you were seeing those visions of mm. Mm. Um, the gurus mm. were you were you drawn to those like just, images or that sort
1: of- I just think my mind was tripping you know i i i um been uh, seeing all these blue figures and i just thought oh my mind's got mixed up with the picasso exhibition i saw in paris in his his blue period i didn't real- <laughs> and, you know i just didn't realize that in fact shiva and krishna are traditionally painted blue you know like oh right so, so i just thought it was my mind tripping um I, I just was enjoying the trip, really, yeah. Um, and, and and as I said, I wasn't spiritually seeking anything that I knew of, you know. And and so I just enjoyed it.
0: And so, but when you saw it, it must have been like,
1: oh, an understatement, blew my mind. How could this happen? How could I see visions of people that I'd never heard of before and never seen before five years before I meet them? You know, I've got to try and understand this. So, yeah.
0: And so, not just any people but the head of a, of a uh, spiritual path.
1: That's right. That, that's, that's what um, blew my mind. And so I was very fortunate when I lived in Hong Kong. I, the centre that I, Holistic Healing Centre, I worked in two days a week. I'd go into the city, stay overnight with a friend and come back out. And I'd have the rest of the time in silence when I wasn't running a workshop. And that wasn't all the time. So I had the beauty of nature, the incredible beauty of nature. I had silence because there wasn't any radio, television or newspapers. Um, and I'd have my readings of spiritual literature. And mostly, in the, after, certainly after I went to the ashram in India, it was in the Siddhi Yoga tradition, but also um, reading Tibetan Buddhism. And at one point I took a group of people through Nepal and Tibet um, because the tantric tradition is the same tradition. It comes from Western Tibet and Northern Indian Kashmir. So there's like a crucible, as I understand it, of non-dual philosophies that then spread through Tibet and China and to Japan with Zen. Um, and, And I just happened to get mixed up in it somehow
0: yeah yeah there's a there's a lot in that so let's go back a few steps all right so the breath work is the idea that you're working in hong kong
1: yes and that's and i just thought oh well i'll see how well my training how good my training was whether i like working in this field but i love working and living in this beautiful place let's see if i can make a living so it's like Let's see if I can make a living. But you see, when I started reading in that tradition, um, and all the Kashmir Shaivite traditions, the breath contains prana, which is the life force, which is the Holy Spirit, which is ki, which is chi, which is, is ruha in the Hebrew. All the traditions have a word for the spirit in the breath. Mm. So when you, when I work with clients with with the breath. I'm not doing anything. I'm putting I'm putting myself in service of that spirit in the breath, and supporting the individual in front of me to work with it, so that they can. They come to me like they do um, would a, a counselor, but it's getting rid of your stuff, getting you rid of your unhappiness, your angst, your compulsiveness, and that. Is, is actually a spiritual practice. So my work is a spiritual practice.
0: You mentioned before the idea of non-dualism, mm-hmm. um, which is an idea that comes through the, the Kashmir Shaivism line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of, from my understanding, originates from, it's especially in the Eastern tradition, from that, Uh, Advaita Vedanta way of looking at the Upanishads and some of those early, that early literature. And the idea as far as I understand it is that non-dualism, dualism dualism would be there as a separation and that separation would be between the individual spirit and the spirit of God. And the non-dualism would be,
1: it's all the same thing. It's
0: all the same thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's
0: a very sort
1: of... Yeah, that'll do, that, that, that's a good enough explanation. I would sit on my balcony in Hong Kong and try and get my brain around all of this. And just as you were talking then, the easiest thing, for the image that came to me when we're trying to talk about non-dualism was you and I are sitting across a table. If someone came through the door, they'd see you and I. But if they levitated and went out into space all they would see was one earth they wouldn't see you and me on it and they certainly wouldn't see you and me at this table talking to each other so that's one image but even that is dualistic everything is part of everything else so the systems theory paradigm shift of the 20th century is the closest thing Intellectually, we can come to it where there is there is no separation. It's all interrelated, and the interrelation, the thing that connects, is energy, and that's the closest that my mind will go to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and the one of the early, um, I suppose, on this one of the early teachers in this line was. Gorakhnath, Godaksanath? Yes. Is that? Yes. So yep. he he was a non-dualist, mm-hmm. but he also said it doesn't really matter just, what <laughs> side, you. if you're a dualist, non-dualist, it doesn't really matter because it all leads to the same point. Exactly,
1: exactly. So our mind, being humans, our mind likes to have explanations and likes to make up theories and likes to, you know, that's what our mind likes to do. And- it's sort of a, it's a security in a way. Oh, this is how this works. This is how I work. This is how the world works. You have to have a lot of trust in life to just allow life to happen.
0: Which is very difficult for, for
1: everyone. For everyone, yep.
0: I was going to say some people, but I, I thought, no, that definitely applies to me as well. Yeah. And I if know. it applies to me, obviously it applies to everyone else.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's, it's, um, if you trust life, then you don't have to worry about the explanations. If you're attuned with the energies that are surrounding you, then um, you flow with them. Mm. And you know that you are part of an energetic system that includes everything, nothing's excluded from it.
0: Yeah. Coming back to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. you said you're spending a lot of time by yourself.
1: Mm in the beauty of nature.
0: Was there, was there a loneliness to that?
1: Absolutely not. And what was interesting, especially by after a few years, I realised the importance of that solitude. I would wake up and look out my window to the bay and the mountains coming down to the sea, and my whole body would be flooded with gratitude. Every cell in my body would be flooded with gratitude. And... I realized that that daily experience of gratitude without it wasn't a thinking thing I'd just look out the window and I I'd, I'd be flooded with gratitude that changed me just and the fact that for 3 years I never knew where the rent was coming from but I never defaulted on the on the payment. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, something was something is looking after me. <laughs> was was like. <laughs> so the combination of those being taken care of in the mundane and being uplifted in the beauty of nature. I mean, there there's many different things, but there was a little creek in a waterfall coming down towards the house. And I remember one day just going up and dancing there like a mad woman. I was just so ecstatically happy, you know. It was like, okay, this is it. (laughs) So I had the challenge of the mundane, of paying the rent, using um, working in fields that no one had ever heard of, breath work and transformational body work, Um, uh, setting up... uh, uh, workshops and then trainings in these two things in, in a foreign country where I had no credit rating because I hadn't lived there long enough and I wasn't employed by anyone. So I had to um, juggle all of that and and maintain my centre and, and be filled with gratitude every day.
0: My next question was going to be... Um a common path, or I suppose the, the extreme path that's followed by a lot of people that take on some of those, some of the, the Hindu traditions, is to withdraw from the world yeah. and um, be, lead a sort of monastic life.
1: See, that's where I'm so grateful. I don't know what it is, it's just grace. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to think, oh, that's what one does now if one's following a spiritual path. You withdraw from the world. I didn't withdraw from the world. Physically did, um, but I had to win a living in the world. I had these days and days and days of solitude and contemplation and reading and study. As the writings in that tradition will say, yes, you withdraw from the world. But I didn't know that at the time. I just wanted to stay in a beautiful place in nature. Uh, and And so... I followed what was a traditional path without knowing beforehand it was a traditional path.
0: Do you think there's something that's quite over demanding about that idea
1: that you have to withdraw? Yes. Oh yes, absolutely. Um absolutely. And and when we are so driven by our mind, as to follow slavishly an idea of what we should do, we're bound to be unhappy. We're bound to be unhappy. We should do this. We should do that. This is what's right. This is what's good. If you attune yourself to yourself, that divine part in you, and follow the impulse, you'll go where you need to go.
0: Even, even if you're not physically withdrawing from the world.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, in fact, in, in the, the tradition of the saints of Maharashtra, which is the um, state just north of um, Bombay, they have a tradition of householder saints, what they call as householder saints. So very, very many enlightened beings were living the life of householders. They didn't withdraw from the world at all. They were very much being a cobbler or a, a tailor or a, you know, they were, that's what they were doing. Yeah, and, and if you think of the, what withdrawal gave me um, was time to gestate and time to understand what had happened to me and what was happening to me. But if you were surrounded by um, an intellectual framework and a ritual support of spiritual practices, then you wouldn't have to do
0: that. Mm. You know? It's sort of just laid out for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you ever get the feeling while you were following that path that this wasn't a good idea, that maybe I should be following <laughs> my career or like having no, a family no. or doing anything like that? Oh,
1: no. No, um, I've had other reason to contemplate my life in the last week. And, um, <laughs> and, and I, just, uh, I just wanted from a very early age to have an interesting life didn't want to achieve anything except have an interesting life. Yeah. And so I just followed the impulse of where interest took me. I was sensible enough to give myself really good qualifications and assure <laughs> and myself up before I sort of cast my fate to the wind and went overseas and did all of this. But, um, no, I, I've never been ambitious and I've never been driven by what uh, people say one should want and do.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so you've got all this time reading and you start, it sounds like you start exploring beyond um, that tantric line.
1: Well, um, Tibetan Buddhism is also called tantric Buddhism. So it's the same, they have the same sort of uh, guru-disciple relationship. As the Kashmir Shaivites do, um, Chan Buddhism in China is a non dual Buddhism, and as is Zen um, in Japan. So, yeah, given the mind I have, I like to try and contextualise things <laughs> <laughs> and not appear stupid if should I be asked. But well, you know, um, and, and I don't remember anyway if if you were to ask me, but. I needed to understand, especially how that awakening experience could happen to me, and how I could see these people in vision, these great teachers in vision, before I'd heard of them. How it was that I was led to a great Tai Chi, to great Tai Chi masters, and then to a great spiritual teacher um, in a great tradition. How could that happen? How could that happen? Was it? normal um what did it mean so there are things that the mind can do to read you know try and figure it out but really ultimately it's the inner work that's the the meditation the contemplation the practice that um that gives one embodied knowledge so the mind is sometimes a help Very often a hindrance, but in my case, because I had such intense experiences beforehand, the mind was quite useful in trying to understand that.
0: And it was sort of leading you to other places.
1: Yeah, and but the the constancy was the the um, knowledge that I was part of that Kashmir Shaivite tradition in a lineage of teachers, because. It could have been that I saw visions of other Kashmir Shaivite teachers, but I didn't. I saw the visions of uh, Guru Mai and Swami Muktananda. Well, that seemed to me to say that I am part of that lineage of knowing. Um, It uh, confused me for quite some time. What was I to make of the physical guru? Here I'd had all the experiences that I'd had and five years of experiences before I met Kuramai. What was I to do with the physical guru? It was like an anathema I'd had already. And there's a when I emceed a, one of the first programs in Hong Kong, um, I was listening to a talk of Swami Muktananda with um, Malti, who was to become... Gramai translating and he said and there are multiple places in the teachings but he said um, the guru is not the vrakti but the shakti. The guru is not the body of the individual but the energy and it's the role of the physical guru to transmit that energy but it can happen as many people have experienced in Siddha in Yoga. It can happen like it happened to me outside that. And when I spoke to one of the Swamis, how come, you know, how come this happened? Well, the teachings say that if you have that sort of experience, you're likely to be led to your physical guru, which was my case.
0: Yeah, because it was the Buddha that said, When the pupil is ready, the teacher appears.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and what I've, um, appreciated over time is the rigor of the, um, tradition and the rigor with which, um, Ramai uh, maintains the spectrum of, um, non-intellectual, easily accessible, uh, teachings to the most erudite of teachings. And, and so wherever you want to go, there'll be a place. So if you just want to sit and chant, there'll be structures for doing that and meditating. If you want to look at the primary sources, they'll be indicated in articles that are written and study courses that are that people can subscribe to. So I... Deeply respect and am grateful for the tradition of which I'm part.
0: But it does sound like you looked into other other teachings, as you were saying before, to sort of.
1: I read. I read um, in the the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I was brought up in the Christian tradition. Then I sort of went to Bible study classes in. Um, all of that, so it was quite until I was about eighteen, quite a, a strong foundation in the Christian tradition, um, and I would pick up here and there um, things about the mystical traditions of Islam and Judaism. So, but didn't never really study them uh, at all.
0: And you sort of touched on it at the start of our interview, but you you were saying that. Once you really dig down into the traditions, there seems to be Mm. a single Uh, single mountain mm. with different paths.
1: Mm. So if we go out in space and look at the earth, it's only one earth. Um, If we go deep inside ourselves to touch the divine, we'll all have a similar experience of that. Um, I think. Well, I mentioned, I think, a a book to you by a Carmelite monk called Bruno Borchett, Mysticism, It's History and Challenge. And this Carmelite monk spends a quarter of the book looking at um, Eastern mysticism and the rest looking at Christian mysticism and concluding that, you know, the, the experience of the saints, the mystics in the Christian tradition have so much in common. You know, traditionally it will be experience of light, of love, of oneness and inclusion, and awe and wonder. They will be the ex- the words that come out of an experience when we hit the divine inside us.
0: This is changing tack a little bit, but it's sort of going on with what you're saying. Um, from what I've seen, the East and Western traditions sort of came together in Early 20th century, they started to people mm-hmm. that started, of we're going over to India, we're going to China, mm. we're going to Japan, mm. and we're starting to learn a lot of the teachings mm-hmm. of um, those, those mm. more Eastern esoteric mm-hmm. <coughs> traditions and bringing them back. And I suppose California was one of the places where it really sort of took off, mm. and a lot of, I believe they call them institutes took off mm-hmm. and they were sort of exploring um, different different ideas and bringing those into the yeah. Western tradition. And I take from that that there seemed to be a dearth of experience in that mis- – a uh, dearth of that mystical experience in the West yeah. about that time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's a great book by Jeffrey Kripal called Esalen. Now, Esalen was one of those crucible places in California. Okay. Um, And uh, and he goes on at length talking, just as you have then, about what was it that um, was such fertile ground and what was it that Esalen produced. And that's uh, an amazing centre for... um, The technologies of consciousness to be made relevant, Um, breath work, if you like, can be considered a technology of consciousness. If you want to explore the nature of consciousness, then you use the breath. Another one of the technologies of consciousness was um, uh, psychedelics. Another one of the technologies of consciousness was uh, uh, systemic theories like... um, Satir or Gestalt, Gestalt that was was growing in Esalen. There were various modalities that were explored. The body-mind connection in the sort of body work I used to do where I would work on the meridian lines and people would have catharsis, emotional catharsis on the table because things were locked into the cells of their body. And so in working with the body, I worked with the mind and the emotions. Through the breath, so those sorts of things. Um, it, it was just the timing was right in in the history of Western civilization. I think that these things emerged in California in the middle of the twentieth century.
0: The, the way that um this is this is I'm repeating back to you what you have already told to me yes. through the article that you sent me earlier. Oh, okay, <clears throat> is that um breath work? became known in the Western context, as we were talking before, in sort of two different mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. lineages. Mm-hmm. One was sort of based on the immort- immortalization of the body, mm-hmm. and the other was based on the awakening of the spirit.
1: Th- I don't think I said it like that. I, I could no, see I'm how you put it I'm, deb- <laughs> I'm definitely paraphrasing yeah. I, I said Why don't I instead. <laughs> I uh, I said that modern breathwork had two modern lineages. One came out of the work of Stanislav Grof, who worked at In- uh, Esalen for fully 10 years.
0: And at the Esalen that you were talking about yes, earlier. Yes, at yeah. the Esalen
1: I was talking about earlier. And he was a fully qualified medical doctor and psychiatrist who had been working with psychedelics with um, uh, asylum in- inmates, and and there's a whole history of how that was. And he found that breath work, in fact, simulated many of those uh, non-what he calls non-ordinary states of consciousness.
0: That's an insane idea to think that you're giving psychedelics to inmates.
1: Well, it happened that um, uh, a chemist in Switzerland had accidentally contaminated his fingertips with this new drug, and he licked his fingers obviously accidentally and went tripping so he then sent these uh, doses out to research institutes with very strict instructions of how to how much to dose and what what the setting should be and what the everything and so stan groff as head of a research institute in czechoslovakia um took the prescribed dose and he had a classic kundalini awakening he he was propelled out the top of his head and out into the universe you know um and there's a lot of resurgence of interest now in microdosing with a, a, a in a proper setting um uh, uh people who are mentally ill mm. so that they can um get a larger perspective on what's going on with them and and the the a lot of literature now coming out and research coming out again so 50 years later after stan and others were doing it around the world there are now psychiatrists like the psychiatrist i met in a local hospital saying yes you know i reckon 70 percent of um uh, illnesses are misdiagnosed in psychiatric institutions
0: wow mm.
1: they they are either spiritual emergence or um, things that can be treated with thing, something other than the drugs that are being prescribed. So, yeah, there's a, there's a, a massive amount of research
0: in this area. Yeah. Be- before we go back to what we were talking about earlier, do you think that um, I've, I've read this a little bit, people that say that having a kundalini experience As a result of taking a psychedelic, is somehow cheating. Do you? What's what's my my opinion
1: of that? Um, I can see why that might be said. I can see, though, uh, uh, it's not the cheating I'd worry about. It'd be the fact that they're not reinforced in having the power within them. Now, when people are very, very armored, then it's you know it's good to crack them open, and often psychedelics will do that. It's not my preferred way of work. Just as in breath work, there are there are practitioners who use the breath in a very yang way and crack people open. I don't like to do that. I like to work with someone so that they can recognise that the power is within them, that they they can surrender to that force that's greater than they are. So you, you force it with, with drugs, but if you're doing the breath, you can force the breath in the, with certain techniques, but if you accompany someone so they're going along and they're step-by-step step surrendering even further and further and further, the result will be that they know that they have the power within them. They know that, no doubt. Right. So as a teacher, that's where I want people to be. I want them to know that they have the power. Not me, not a therapist, not a drug, not anything else, but they themselves have that power.
0: Yeah. Okay, so going back. So Stan <laughs> <Dan laughs> Gruff is...
1: Is one lineage. Yeah. And and because he's such an amazing man and researcher, he's written so much. And so that style has been um, very well documented and supported by a very intelligent, caring man. um. The other was rebirthing breathwork, and um, that was uh, created by a man called Leonard Orr. And he was more, dare I say, and I would be probably nailed to something if um, his followers heard me. It it appeared to be more flaky, but it's not. All you've got to do with the breath is flow it and flow with it. Mm -hmm. The trappings that surround it draw this or that sort of person to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: So 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 the technique is the same. It's a flowing of the breath. So merging of the in and the out breath. So life flows through you and you flow with it. Um and there there are contexts that are set differently in those two lineages.
0: Right. And what would you say are, are the the main differences between those two
1: the context. intellectual context that Stangroff provided—it's um, not that Lenore didn't write, but he didn't write in a in a academic way, the way Stan has. Yeah. And um, uh, that uh, I would place myself in the middle of the two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because I've read virtually everything that Stangroff has um, written, uh, and I don't like the way that holotropic breathwork gets performed. Um, The rebirthing breathwork is a much... It's changed now in the holotropic school, but... Holotropic uh, being Stan... Stan Groff, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, It was a much more yang approach. um, And the approach of Leonard Orr was a much more yin approach, much more gentle, yielding approach. And so... I'm halfway in between, more on the gentle side than I am on the hard yeah. side. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> being the gentle side. Yeah, are. that's <laughs> right.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: But you, you've gotten to a stage through being in Hong Kong where you, you're you sort of very committed and convinced by this way of. It's not the only way. It's not the only way. It's my way. Right.
1: You know, um, Tao, Taoism which is paradoxically what I base most my trainings around, is that it is that balance and harmony of opposites. Um, but Tao means way. And for me, everyone has their way. You know, it's a matter of finding our way to embody spirit and be true to ourselves. I found this way or this way found me in this lifetime. And i'm i'm happy with 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 that path you know yeah but i i wouldn't push it on anyone else and certainly wouldn't push it on any of my clients except that they'll come to that realization if they practice the breath often enough that the breath is an intrinsic part of it but all the traditions the Japanese, the Chinese, the Indian, the Hebrew, the Islamic, the Christian, all have a word for spirit in the breath. Mm. So you one's drawn to the path yeah. by for, good fortune or happenstance. or
0: Just the movement of the spirit bringing itself back exactly, to itself. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you've come to your idea from the Kashmir Shaivism and the City Yoga, but then you said there that you base your... Uh, Your teaching true. around Taoism. Can you talk me through? Well, can you talk me through that? Given that
1: we live in a world of duality.
0: Yeah.
1: There's you and me sitting here, and the inside of the room and the outside out there. That we live in a world of duality. So it's important to have a way of accepting that. And Taoism also talks in the yin and the yang. Also talks about the cycles of change. So if you look at that very, very debased symbol of yin-yang, you have a little black dot in the white part and a little white dot in the black part, and that can be interpreted as the seed of the next cycle. So if you look at the diagram, the white, for example, begins small and grows big, and in the bigness is the black, and then you go down. So it's... Taoism is about the balance of opposites, balance and harmony of opposites, and the cycles of change. Now, unless I think, unless we get that in our skin, that there's you and me, and there's this and that, and and both are part of a greater whole, we're always going to be comparing ourselves and unhappy. And if we don't accept that, in fact, there are seasons in our life, in our career, in our relationships, as in the garden, you know, we have to know how to navigate those cycles. And like we're here at the very beginning of autumn. I did autumn last year. Surely I would have learned to do autumn. When I hear clients, oh, I did that once. Well, no, life is doing things in their seasons and there are sort of daily seasons and there are yearly seasons and there are seasons in larger bodies of time. So unless there's a paradigm that you have to understand that deeply, you're always dissatisfied. Simple as that. You're not seeing that life is acquiring life skills. Why? Not because they're good and in and of themselves to achieve something in a linear mode. Now it's like navigating the boat and down a series of rapids. You need this skill and that skill to navigate the rapids, the peaceful times there. That's how I use it. And it came to me because martial arts are a three-dimensional mandala of the cycles of change. And I was practicing one day um, and I got that flash of insight and then I looked at the writings and I looked at my practice and I looked at the breath flowing and I looked at life flowing and I thought, well, it's all very well to talk in the abstract about non-dual. What is it that will help us live the duality? And that's... So there are those two major influences in my life. It's not that it's an either or. It's actually both have been a major influence in my life and my teaching.
0: That's really interesting because you're bringing the the non-dual side and the dual side into a unified thing. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm... Discovering more and more um, is the idea of um, compatible contradictions. Absolutely, and that you can have two things that, at, at first instance, seem at odds with one another.
1: Exactly, like mass and energy.
0: Yeah, and they can and they can exist, and they are one and the same. And they usually uh, are symbiotic with one another, no. and. Through understanding one, you understand the other better and exactly. vice versa, and Exactly. you can exactly. keep expanding and keep growing.
1: Yeah, and when you think you've understood it all, you'll be faced with something that, oh, you mean I didn't really get all the picture? <laughs> you have to see another aspect of it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn.
1: <laughs> I thought I
0: got it wrong. Yeah, and if you don't have that... Ability to bring in a new aspect Mm. and to allow another contradiction to come in. It can shatter the worldview that someone had.
1: And and so one of the things I think you will have seen that I'm quite flexible in uh, allowing other paths because if we have a rigid view of what is and how things should be, we will get shattered, that's for sure. Mm. If you can hold the contradictions... And know that you have the capacity for great joy and great pain. And more likely than not in this lifetime, you'll have both great joy and great pain. And the thing is how to hold centre and see it just as a part of life.
0: Mm. And expect them. And when they come, be content with them. Exactly. (laughs) So coming back to your story, Mm. you're in Hong Kong. Mm. But you obviously, you obviously get to a point where you, you
1: you've I, I Yes, I did for two reasons. Firstly, I wanted to be near my parents in the last years of their life. And secondly, I, I had developed all the paradigms that I teach from. And I had integrated a way of explaining the traumas of existence and our separation from God in a simple, simple way. And... That's basically how I teach, what I teach from. And so it's like, oh, well, I was on the mountaintop or in the desert and now I've got to come down back into the marketplace. And so I did in nearly, how long ago now? 25 years ago now. Hmm.
0: And was that difficult? Very.
1: First of all, it was difficult because I love that beautiful place in nature. Um. And I grieved like I'd grieve the loss of a loved one. Um, And I didn't know what to do with myself. Where am I in this marketplace that I've got good qualifications so I could dip in and out of those as I dipped in and out of the breath work and I managed to make a living. But what I did do was uh, get together with a group of colleagues and get Breathwork, Australian government accredited through the vocational education system and created a registered training organization to deliver those courses. And we let that go in 2015. So um, fully 10 operational years, and then just the compliance issues and the tedium, and the fact that it's not um, uh, an extremely marketable thing, Breathwork. And now I've I've gone on training, and and um, I have a workshop studio in the end of my garden where people come twice a year to study with me. And I was listening to just before you came a man called Mark Dakovsky, who's a Kashmir Shaivite scholar and teacher. And he was and he's a couple of years younger than me and um but a really a world renowned scholar and teacher and he said well at this stage of life what else is there to do but pass on what you've learned
0: yeah and i suppose you've gone from when you were doing your academic work teaching a language of english mm-hmm. and now you're teaching a language of the spirit
1: yeah yeah that's a nice way of putting it
0: yeah <laughs> can you can we perhaps do can can you run me through what um, what you do in one of these sessions? If
1: someone comes to me individually as a client?
0: Yeah. Well, I'll explain that
1: the the technique is exceedingly simple. We've all experienced it. If we go on a slow jog or walk up a very steep hill, we end up breathing fully and deeply through our mouth because we need the oxygen to propel ourselves along. Or When you lie down on a couch, as you will, and if you, I'm talking to you as a client, in yeah. a few minutes, What's gonna happen is I'm gonna ask you to breathe fully and deeply, comfortably, but fully and deeply. And instead of being propelled along externally, you're gonna be propelled on an inner journey. And what that inner journey will give you is totally unpredictable, but its goal is to release suppressed emotion, source unconscious beliefs and attitudes. So in an expanded state of consciousness, you can release them and you personally can choose something else to reprogram yourself with. So the reason the first part's important is that releasing of a suppressed emotion is because when we, we don't even know we're full up, but if we're very sad or very angry and we've had that experience, we know we can't think straight. Mm. Hmm? If we've swallowed emotions down over the years because we haven't known how to, to process them, we don't even know that there's a distorting filter in our perceptions and our expression. So in and of itself, the release of emotion, if it's locked down there, is beneficial because you can see more clearly. Your perception is clearer. Mm. And most of our beliefs are unconscious. So if we keep repeating the same old pattern in our life, it's because there's a really good reason. There's some belief down, down there that, that that is programming us to do that. So instead of saying, oh, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get over this? Or why do I keep on doing this? One needs to look into the subconscious mind to get a handle on that. What's there in programming. So then in releasing those two, a source, releasing the emotions, being able to see more clearly, having insight into the destructive and limiting beliefs that keep us looping around unhelpful behavior patterns, we then are able to be more in charge of ourselves in life. So.
0: and that's the the choice that you offer them
1: that's what breath work does
0: yeah to me the breath is so basic mm. it's it's forgettable I suppose' <laughs> it for it, no, no one's really conscious of their breath. I don't think anyone is conscious of their breath at all times.
1: No, only if you're an asthmatic and you have a, a problem breathing, you become very aware of, of your breathing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, most of us, it's, well, we just go
0: on. And in that regard, the 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 constant vital nature of the breath that exists in the background regardless of what else other people are doing Uh, I'm beginning to see how it. It's our
1: constant companion.
0: How it's so translatable into
1: yeah. It's our constant companion.
0: Yeah, it's a because in thinking about it, I was like breathwork. It seems like such a such a basic thing that you wouldn't need to be trained in it, or you wouldn't need to. So, in
1: 2013, um, I'm on an international board, Global Professional Breathwork Alliance. But we got together all sorts of um, breathwork practitioners, whether they're from qigong or um, pranayama or uh, mindfulness, and we had a seminar, five-day seminar, in the Amiga Institute in the United States, and um, it was called The Breath Immersion, From Science to Samadhi. So we had the doctors Gerbach and Brown who've done research, psychiatrists who've done research into coherent breathing that balances the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. We had Dan Siegel, we had Stan Groff, we had, um, Jack Cornfield, you know, and we had people like me who do conscious connected breathing for psychotherapeutic purposes. And so it's happened now that I think there's an identifiable field of breath work in which there are specialities. Mm. Yeah. So it could be qigong or it could be pranayama or it could be mindfulness breathing or it could be coherent breathing of the of the, the medicine, butyeko breathing for um, really good for asthma and things like that. There's a whole field of breathwork because breath is life.
0: Yeah. You know? and, and we were talking before we started recording how modern medicine these days seems to be coming a lot more attuned to – um these sorts of um, these sorts of treatments that were otherwise deemed, that's right, beyond yeah. Western medicine.
1: That's right. They've, they've become uh, open to the practices that were implied in the psychosomatics of illness. So medical textbooks have long held that there are psychosomatic illnesses. And yet they will never use the body-oriented practices that will help them with the illness until recently.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's nice to know that the those holistic doctors are actually bringing the mind into mm-hmm. the treatment.
1: It parallels that paradigm shift I was talking about for the 20th century. Fritjof Capra's book, by the way, The Web of Life, is probably the best um, description of that paradigm shift from a linear model to a systemic worldview in all disciplines. Um, but uh, it, it parallels that paradigm shift. Everything is is we're beginning to see it's part of a whole. So integrated medicine, holistic medicine, holistic practices, ecological um, uh, studies, you know, they're all part of that systems theory and the interrelationship of everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And trying to bring everything back to that balance. Mm.
1: And, and and knowing that um, if you have a complex of integrated systems, any change in one part of the complexity will change the rest of it. So we're always moving and very rarely are we static.
0: Well, and I feel that's a good place to, to leave it. Um, and it's been a very comprehensive conversation. i We've covered, covered a lot. Um, there's probably a bit of uh, required reading. As, as <laughs> no, as- no,
1: no, no. <laughs> Have the experience first. Right, Have yeah. the experience first and then if you feel you need to read, read after the event because that's how I I train people. I, I give them references but I really don't expect them to read anything because once they've had the experience, if their mind needs something – They'll go and read it. You won't understand from your mind.
0: Yeah. Well, Anne, thank you very much for, for chatting this afternoon. It's
1: been my great pleasure. I've really enjoyed it has. a lot. Yeah.
0: And um, I'll put a link to, because you've got a website. Oh, Obviously, yeah. we were talking yeah. about your uh, your um, your business. And mm-hmm. if anyone's interested, the link will be in the description to, to the interview. So you can check that out. Thank you. Um, but Anne, thank you very much. A pleasure. Thanks. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Jack.